Welcome, welcome, welcome to Claim the Stage. If it's your first time here, happy to meet you. I'm Angela Lucier. I'm your host. I'm also an author, speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women at speakersisterhood.com. And welcome to episode 138. Uh, to be totally honest, I was sort of dreading this episode. <laughs> um, I was thinking, why did I decide to put two weeks between the questions episode and this episode, the answers episode? That's two weeks of overthinking and worrying and trying to make sense of a lot of information in what feels like an eternity and a really short period of time at the same time. Am I glad I'm doing this episode? <sighs> kind of. Um... I had to laugh when I thought about naming it the answers episode, because that implies that I have answers. <laughs> I don't really feel like these are answers. <laughs> I feel like I have a lot of thoughts and I'm going to piece a lot of my thoughts together, but I don't know if it makes sense or not, but I think it's important to at least say something. And I think that's my goal of today's episode. I'm not going to try to be brilliant or perfect or right which is what I often talk about when it comes to giving a speech or trying to get the words out for the first time. Don't try to do it and be the best. Just try and start somewhere. So I'm starting somewhere. And oh, before I forget, I wanted to let you know that I'm in the glitter closet today. I'm back in the glitter closet. I have not been in the glitter closet for months because it was a mess and I just didn't want to deal with it. And now I cleaned it out and it's warm, so I'm probably going to start sweating in here soon, but <laughs> I wanted to uh, get back in here for this episode. So I have a lot to talk about. I, if, you're, if you haven't listened to the questions episode yet, I would say go back and listen. It's only about 15 minutes long, and there's a PDF you can print off from the website that has all the questions listed. So if you want to answer them, you can do that on your own time. But the questions, I, you know, I, I wrote them and then I reviewed them quickly right after I wrote the, I recorded the episode, but I didn't really look at them again. I kind of just like got an idea of what I was getting at and then I wanted to see what showed up. And what I did over the last two weeks was I took a ton of notes. Like I would be driving and something would pop into my head and I would think, oh, I might, maybe I'll say that on the podcast. So I would just like make a little um, audio note in my phone. And I just kept emailing these notes to myself. And this morning I went through and I made a list of all the notes I had written down. And I was like, okay, <laughs> what, what am I going to do with all these notes? <laughs> I'm not really sure. So I tried to put them in order and got rid of some things and trying to just, instead of going question by question, I'm going to just say a whole bunch of stuff that has shown up for me. And with the hopes of maybe shedding some lights, light on some of the things you're thinking about or starting a conversation that I would like to continue. So I do want to say that too, that this is not the last episode where we're going to talk about personal growth and how we're feeling about ourselves and how we're dealing with a bigger problem of racism and 
This week, I got an email from a member of Speaker Sisterhood who had said that in her Speaker Sisterhood club, the topic came up and there was a prompt, which was one of the questions from the podcast about when were you, when did you become aware of your whiteness? And uh, many members got up and shared. And instead of sharing about their whiteness, they shared about times that they became aware of how they could help a black person. I think that was the gist of it. It was a little bit off from the actual topic. And she was writing to ask, like, how are we going to support these conversations and how are we going to guide them? And my answer first was, well, we want to create a space for women to share their voice, not necessarily guide them or give feedback unless that's what they're asking for. So I'm in the process of figuring out how our clubs can shift or create space or just what do we want to do to make sure that this conversation continues and that we're educated and trained on how to have those conversations or at least sit in the audience and be helpful in moving the conversation forward. So that's something I'm thinking about from you know, the, the leadership perspective. But there's so much here that I want to talk about today. Um, some of it kind of makes me want to throw up, but we're going to get through that together. <laughs> Before I jump into that, though, I was reminded of a graduation speech that has been translated into a book and is also a YouTube video, and it's it's gotten millions and millions of views, and it's been talked about for years. It was delivered, let me see, I think it was in 2005. Yeah, it was delivered in 2005 by David Foster Wallace. And if you're not familiar with him, he was the author of Infinite Jest and The Broom of the System and lots of other short stories and essays. And he committed suicide in 2008. But he gave this commencement speech, which was... I don't know, a little different than what you'd normally hear at a commencement speech. And I really loved the speech. And most of all, I love the opening of the speech. So I want to sh- open the podcast with the first couple lines of his speech, because I think it does a really good job of, I don't know, highlighting what it is we're, we're all working on right now. The speech is called, This is Water. Some Thoughts Delivered on a Significant Occasion About Living a Compassionate Life by David Foster Wallace. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and they eventually, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? This is a standard requirement of U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish stories. The story thing turns out to be one of the better, less bullshitty conventions of the genre, but if you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise old fish explaining what water is to you younger fish, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The immediate point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. So it goes on and on, and he's got all kinds of awesome things to say in the rest of the speech, and you can find it online. But I wanted to start with that very short parable, (laughs) 
because it really, it just, I don't know, I think it illustrates exactly what we're going through right now of this conversation about invisible racism and not showing up for our, our fellow humans in a way that is taking, you know, in terms of taking action and using our voice and speaking up, but just being complacent and sitting back and hoping someone else will solve the problem. And I say that from the point of view of a white woman who grew up in a town, I think it was 99% white. I think we had like two Chinese kids and three black kids in our school, maybe. Um, And there were what, like six or 700 kids in my high school. And I, I, so I I recognize that piece from, you know, in terms of talking about racism, which we're going to talk about today, but also just about my own privilege as a white person and also other things like being able to see myself for truly who I am, which is so, I don't know if funny is the word, but it's coincidental because I have been doing some really deep therapy over the course of 2020 because I have gone through so much difficulty in the last year, last 12 months, that I was starting to feel like maybe I'm doing life wrong or like maybe there's something wrong with me because I don't seem to be handling some of the things that are coming at me very well. And to give you the quick background, which if you've been listening for a while, you probably know the background, so I'll just spend a minute on this. But last July, I had my first baby um, after giving birth, had pretty severe postpartum depression and anxiety and insomnia and was just exhausted, crying, just having a really hard time for months and months. And then in November, my dad died um, suddenly after a quadruple bypass surgery that just didn't go well. And then um, in December, my boyfriend and I, who is the father of my son, we broke up. And um, having those huge things happen over the course of six months really sent me into a position of reevaluation and also needing some support and help and questions about, like, where do I go from here and what what happened here not not what happened like how did I get postpartum depression but more like I just had a lot of questions about like a lot of the feelings that were coming up as a result of these sort of traumas that happened really close together and I also had a lot of more like existential questions that come from experiencing birth and death and endings and things like that so in in therapy I was able to uncover some pretty intense truths about myself that I think I either couldn't see or was in denial about because they had been there for so long. And this David Foster Wallace little story, I think, is a really good example of of that, too, in, in a personal level. And, you know, looking at these first 10 questions that were on the list about, like, let me see, I'm going to bring them up. hold on. I have like so many different notes in front of me here. There, (laughs) Some of the questions were, what am I learning to do right now? Or what am I learning right now? What am I letting go of? 
What do I feel unwilling to let go of? What have I learned about loneliness, being alone and being touched? What am I feeling compelled to change? All of these questions I was asking myself and was feeling like I couldn't really find those answers. And my therapist, who is awesome, (laughs) helped me to see that I had some addictions in my life that were creating a cloud that made it harder for me to see because every time I would feel pain, I would just go right to my addictions. And what I've come to realize is that I am a workaholic and I am a love addict and I am codependent. And to say those three things out loud takes a lot of courage because when I first realized those things about me, I felt a ton of shame. And I felt really embarrassed and I felt like a loser. (laughs) And I felt like, how could that happen to me? I felt like I had things together and I felt like, I don't know. I thought I was like smarter than that. I don't know. And, and so my therapist suggested going to some support groups like SLAA, which is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, CODA, which is Codependence Anonymous, and WA, which is Workaholics Anonymous. And this was during like the beginning of COVID. So I was like, well, I can't go to any of these groups. So I started going to them online. And I have to say, it was amazing to hear stories from other people who struggle with workaholism, who struggle with a love addiction, who struggle with codependency, because I heard my story in like everybody else's stories. And then I realized, wow, this is so much like speaker sisterhood. (laughs) I was laughing because people have told me over the years that going to a speaker sisterhood meeting has the same kind of therapeutic event um, effects as going to a support group. And I was like, oh, I've never been to a support group. I mean, I wouldn't say speaker sisterhood is a support group, but I can understand why there might be some similarities in feeling, you know, seen and heard by speaking up in a supportive group. And now that I've attended a ton of these meetings online, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, I get I get it. <laughs> and I can see why there's such value in being in a group of people who can hear you and understand you because it can feel really lonely and shameful and scary to navigate it all by yourself. So in the last few months, I've come to realize my biggest fears in life. And when I think when I really became aware and willing to accept my fears, that was when my life really started to change and open up and I could really start to see myself and why I make the decisions I make. And it's been humbling. (laughs) And I really struggled. Like this was probably the biggest struggle over the last two weeks of like, do I share this on the podcast? Like, do I want everyone to know this? And part of me like doesn't want anyone ever to know this because I do still feel like a failure in a way, but I also know that by speaking about it, you do take the power away from the shame. And by speaking about it, it starts to feel like, you know, maybe I can help somebody else by saying this. And when I shared with my therapist that I felt a lot of shame when I went to the meeting, the first thing she said to me was, Oh, just so you know, everyone is an addict. Like everybody is addicted to something. It could be social media. It could be food. It could be 
work. It could be sex. It could be anything. But the difference is that, like, you're actually acknowledging it and doing something about it. A lot of people don't really want to acknowledge and do something about it. And I was like, okay, well, (laughs) I guess that's helpful. So those are my addictions. And that's why I've gotten into relationships that haven't worked very well. That's why I've been a people pleaser my whole life. And that's why I have worked so hard for so long. Like, I've been afraid of letting people down. And... And now I can see it all, and it's so helpful <laughs> to realize when I feel pain, I go to one of those addictions, and so now I can actually work with the pain instead. <sighs> and I can already like see changes in my life like that are coming out of making little subtle shifts when instead of going into my addiction, I can instead take a loving action or connect with a higher power or do something that allows me to connect with my feelings. That's pretty powerful. So I'm sharing that, yeah, because I think it's important to just say out loud. And that's part of what's been true for me over the last six months and the changes I've been going through. One of the things that I started researching as a result of, I think it was part of my codependency research I was doing. I was listening to a podcast about codependency. And if you don't know what codependency is, it's basically where you try to like fix other people in order to fix yourself and you put other people's needs and, and, um, wants ahead of your own. And you try to caretake everybody in order to feel better about yourself. So, um, it's a really, it's, I think it's a really popular addiction actually. And it's hard to see because you can complicate, you can confuse it with just being a nice person. So, I'm trying to see the difference, but I was listening to the codependency podcast and they had an interview on there with, um, a woman who was talking about epigenetics and I'd never heard of epigenetics before, but I was really fascinated by what she shared because it was another clue to where addiction comes from. And I want to share it because it has to do with this topic of racism too. So epigenetics is the study of uh, how our genes change over time through traumatic events. So let's say, for example, your grandmother um, witnessed a horrendous car accident where she saw her parents get killed. Um, That trauma became imprinted on her cells and became imprinted in her DNA So when she gave birth to your mom or dad, that baby had that trauma in their body. And so that baby could grow up to be afraid of being in a car or have a, you know, an um, irrational fear of, of being in traffic or something because the grandmother experienced that traumatic accident. And you yourself could even have that same trauma and experienced that same fear and anxiety because of what happened two generations ago. So they've done a lot of studies on it. They've done the studies in mice, and they've seen the actual, um, I guess, you know, what can happen over lifetimes when it didn't even happen to you, but how it can affect you in your in your life. And what I found interesting about it was, There's a way to heal the trauma so that it doesn't carry on to future generations. And the way you heal it is by talking about it with your family. 
<laughs> instead of making it this big secret and this topic that is, creates shame and fear, you talk about it and it helps to release and heal the trauma. And I thought, this is why these support groups work. This is why speaker sisterhood is so popular and helpful because talking about it is what gets it out of our body and helps us to experience it in a new way and not feel so much pain around it. And that's why this podcast is so helpful too, because I can talk about it. And uh, two weeks ago when I posted the questions episode, I invited everyone listening to send their answers in to me so I could share them here. And guess what? <laughs> Nobody sent me answers. <laughs> I was kind of surprised. And I even waited until today, Wednesday, to, to record this episode because I thought, well, maybe someone will send something in late Tuesday night. But I didn't get a single response. And I thought, well, that sucks, you know. And so I went back and I looked at the stats for the episode. I'm like, oh, a lot of people listen to it. And then I went back to my website and I looked at the stats for how many people viewed the questions document. And a lot of people looked at the questions document. So I was like, all right, the episode did go out into the world. People did hear it. They did look at the questions, but why didn't they send their answers in? And I came up with a bunch of different possibilities. Like maybe they're still thinking about it and they need more time or maybe they're too scared to share it out loud. They want to keep it to themselves. Maybe they're having those conversations elsewhere with their friends or in a speaker sisterhood meeting, or maybe they're not talking about it. They're just posting stuff on social media. I don't know. But I did think it was curious. I was just kind of wondering why no one sent answers. And if you want to tell me why, I would love to hear. If you want to email me, Angela at speakersisterhood.com, I'd love to know why you didn't send your answers in. Um, so yeah, I'm only sharing my stuff here, but <laughs> I want to share that if you're feeling some discomfort or pain or shame around the questions, the stuff that's coming up from these questions, saying out loud what's coming up for you can be healing in itself. So I just want to make sure you have that awareness and you could share it with a friend or you can share it with a therapist or, you know, a parent or something, but doing that is in itself a healing activity. So I wanted to make sure that you knew that. And if you want to learn more about epigenetics, there's a, a book by Mark Wolin. It's called It Didn't Start With You, and it's so cool. Um, I just watched a talk that he gave. It's about 30 minutes long. It's on YouTube. It's the same name, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. I'll, I'll link to it in the notes, and you can watch it. It's just, like, so fascinating to me. And it also made me wonder if... Because racism and slavery, you know, it's been it started 400 years ago... There have been so many generations of white people and black people who have had to feel that sort of separation or that that trauma and conflict. And I just wonder if today that's all stored in our bodies. And even though as a white woman, I don't believe anyone in my family has ever had to feel what it felt like to be enslaved, but I know that they had to endure and face and see what was going on in the country and in the world with enslaving others. And I, I just want to, I just would think that as a human race, that's traumatic to, to see, you know, and to, to know is going on because it's not, it's unjust. It's not kind. It's, it's not loving. It's the opposite. 
and we have that in our bodies. So I don't know, epigenetics came up for me for a different reason, but I feel like it's actually a bigger conversation that could be part of what we're thinking about right now. So when it comes to the the racism questions, I I thought to myself, like, what what have I been doing to try to advance the rights and the um, I don't know the attention towards ending racism? And the answer is nothing. Like, honestly, I haven't been doing anything. Um, and then I thought, well, what have I been doing to, like, harm black people? And the answer was also nothing. Like, I haven't done anything, period. So in my mind, I wasn't doing anything wrong because I wasn't harming, but I also wasn't hurting or I wasn't helping. So that seemed fine for a while. <laughs> um, it's obviously not fine. But when I was thinking about all the memes I see on social media and the videos and the quotes and the links, it seems like everything is focusing towards me as the target audience, me being white, middle-class, educated, um, with privileges that others aren't born with, um, who doesn't identify as racist yet hasn't taken any action to try and support and empower black people. So uh, it made me think of <laughs> um, an advertising class I took in college where they talked about the tobacco companies, like the cigarette companies and how they had to go in front of the court to talk about why they wanted to continue putting advertisements for cigarettes on billboards and magazines when it was clear that their product killed people. Like, why did they think that they should be able to do that? And the way that they were able to fight for the ability to continue was by saying, we're not advertising to um, non-smokers to become smokers. We're advertising to the switchers. We're trying to advertise to the cigarette smokers who are smoking our competitor's brand. We want to have them smoke our brand. <laughs> and that was fine. So they were able to continue advertising because that was their rationale. So when I see a lot of the posts now, I feel like they're they're trying to um, promote the um, action steps to switchers, people who are already not racist or anti-racist, but aren't taking the steps. They want to switch them over from being you know, complacent anti-racists to anti-racists who are looking to do more. So I guess that would be me. Like, <laughs> I want to I wanna switch from not doing anything to doing something. And I think it's a lot easier to get this group that I'm in, which I think is probably the majority, I would say. I don't, and I was wondering if there are numbers. I mean, I don't even know where you would get numbers on, like, how many racist people live in the country? Like, is there a survey on that? I don't think so. 
um, I would think that the easiest way to move the needle is to find the people who already identify as anti-racist and then getting them mobilized to take more action. So I, I think me today being a complacent anti-racist looking to do more makes me, what is the acronym? Like Carldom? <laughs> I'm a Carldom. And I want to I wanna take more action. And I think if we can get the the anti-racists who are already taking action with the complacent anti-racists who want to do more, put all them together. I think that group would be much bigger than the racist group. So hopefully we can make a dent and make a big difference. But I don't think it's going to happen quickly. I mean, this has been going on for so long. So I think we have to mobilize for the long term and look at the long game and not exhaust ourselves ourselves today, but look at long-term lifetime changes we can make. It's not like go volunteer this weekend and then it's over. It's like, these are lifestyle changes we need to make that are sustainable and that will make a difference and actually move the needle and not like everyone forgets it in the fall and we all move on to some new thing. Like it's a real commitment we have to stand behind and say, I'm going to make a change in the way that I view myself and the way that I view the way I show up in the world. And, you know, I had to ask myself, like, what the hell have I been doing this whole time? Why haven't I been taking a stand? And why haven't I been outraged and helping people, helping black people when I've been capable and able to do it this whole time? And I can tell you exactly why, because <laughs> I know the answer to this question. And I think it it's similar to what I was able to recognize in myself when I started to come to terms with being a workaholic and being a love addict and codependent. For years and years, I was able to rationalize that behavior by normalizing it. Like with workaholism, being an entrepreneur, you can work 24-7 and that is celebrated. You can work every single weekend and people will be like, you hustle girl, you are so strong. You are doing the work and, and people will tell you how amazing you are for killing yourself for your job. And when, when you own a business, you can see the direct benefits of, of the uh, nonstop work because you can see the growth. It's not like having a nine to five job where it's like your paycheck stays the same. When you're an entrepreneur, you are rewarded for workaholism. And so I could always justify working more because I knew I could help more people and I knew that I could grow the business faster and I knew I could, I, I, like all the things that come from working harder were happening. So I was able to justify workaholism. So when it comes to being a complacent anti-racist, I was able to justify it by saying, I'm pouring my heart and soul into a different cause and I'm only one person, so I can only do so much. So if I can put all my energy into one thing, then maybe I can make a difference. But if I try and do too many different things, then I won't be able to make the impact I want to make with helping women find their voice and creating a movement in that space. So that's how I justified not helping with any of the anything to do with race really. And for years that worked really well for me. It was like, well, I can't look over there because if I look over there, then it takes my focus off the thing that I'm really trying to do. And that's bullshit because I don't have to put 40 hours a week into making some sort of difference 
in the fight for black people's rights. Um, but I can, con I can commit to another, uh, another amount of time. And, you know, as I started to think about like, well, what could I do? It was so glaringly obvious. Like <laughs> as soon as I really asked myself the question of like, what could I be doing differently? It was like, dumbass, you have an organization that could like help so many black women. If you just put the effort into making that possible, like don't don't pretend like you have to reinvent the wheel and go create another organization. Just like build something into the company you already have that is already functioning and helping people. So <laughs> that was pretty exciting to realize that. Um, and I wanted to mention that a couple of years ago, there were two black women who are members of the Springfield, Massachusetts Speaker Sisterhood Club who asked to meet with me once and and then we had sat down and I think we talked for about 45 minutes and they were asking about more representation of black women on the website. They wanted more black women in the marketing and they wanted to know how we could recruit more black women. And I asked them if I could use their images on the website and I asked them if they could help with recruiting more members and I asked them for their ideas. And to be totally honest, we used a couple of their images on the website and in the marketing, but didn't do much more than that. I got distracted. I didn't make it a priority. I didn't partner with organizations. I just thought, you know, if women want to come, they can come. This is not um, exclusive to white women. Um, I hope that they'll find it and show up. And I kind of just left it at that. <laughs> and like, as I say that today, I'm like, what an ass. Like, I could have put a lot more effort into trying and I didn't, but I want to now. So I want to make more scholarships available specifically for black women. And I want to partner with organizations that have a mission that is set out to help women of color. And I want to go and speak to groups for free that are for like teenage girls. Um, the last two summers, we did a pilot program for girls from 9 to 11 years old and 12 to 14 years old in some of the inner cities. So the majority of the girls in those groups were black. And it was really great to be able to help them. But those groups are really small. So I'd like to be able to speak to larger groups and also continue that work. Um, yeah, have scholarships available. And also make the barriers to entry to creating the, a club uh, a little easier, like a discounted license for running your own speaker sisterhood club and helping to you know create more training so we can get more clubs launched and led by black women, hopefully encourage more black women to join and feel comfortable being part of the community. So, you know, as I look at these questions, I'm like, yeah, there's so much here that I could be doing. It's not even that difficult. It's not that different from what I'm already doing. It's just about adding it to my focus and putting it down as a priority and not pretending like it's not happening. And that's been, I guess, the, <laughs> the theme of 2020 in my life is like, stop pretending that's not happening. Because <laughs> the pretending is where we get into a little bit of trouble. So let me see if I had anything else I wanted to mention. I think that's pretty much it. 
there's a lot here. And I want to just encourage you to, to really be honest with yourself. And you might find things that come up that you're embarrassed about or that you feel shame about or that you just like don't want to tell anybody. But I just have to say that the healing comes from talking and from connecting about it. And I bet you that when you say your thing out loud, other people are going to be like, yeah, you know what? I feel like that too. And we just have to create a starting point. And once we have a starting point, we can keep getting better. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, my goal here was not to be perfect or to sound brilliant or to like, I don't know, come up with all the best ideas. It was really just about like saying this is where I am right now and acknowledging it and now trying to be better. And I hope that you're all doing the same because this is our opportunity. I think the opportunity has always been there, but now it's like, it's really here. Like, let's stop waiting. And this is, <laughs> if, you, if you've heard any of my episodes or ever met me, you've heard my, my, um, my motto, stop waiting, start creating, right? So let's do that. Let's start creating together. And if you didn't send, send your answers in, which nobody did, so um, I'm talking to you. If you want to email me after the fact and share anything that's coming up for you, I would love to hear it. Just like, just to read your email. You don't need, I won't put it on the podcast. I just want to read it. And if I do get more responses down the line, maybe I will create another episode if you want me to share what you're thinking cuz it's not like this episode or this this conversation is over. We have a long way to go. And I want to keep talking about it and I want to keep highlighting the awesome amazing things that black women are doing and that this this country is doing to help and lift black people up cuz it's about time. So let's do it together. And I think that's it. <laughs> I got through the episode. I did it. Oh, my God. I'm going to go run around in the backyard. All right. I love you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being part of this community. If you want to check out a Speaker Sisterhood Club and find out what it's all about, the clubs are still meeting virtually, and you can join any one of them and just be part of the uh, the fun and the learning and the community and the growth. It's just it's. It's pretty awesome. You can find us at speakersisterhood.com. All right, that's it for me this week, you guys. Thanks so much. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time.